starting a, starting with uh, belief. I don't know if you guys were able to watch the services or not, but or at least catch them at some point. A couple weeks ago, we talked about belief. Last week, we talked about faith, hope, and let's. Today, I want to talk about what belief and faith and hope lead to. If you, if you start to understand your belief, if you start to really focus on believing, having true faith, it leads you to having hope because you, your hope is in your belief. And the natural journey of that hope becomes a calling. So all who have faith, all who have belief, gain hope, and through their hope, they gain a calling. So I want to start today with Romans chapter 8, verse 24 through 30. Verse 24 says, for we are saved by hope. Saved by hope. That's important. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man sees, why does he hope for it? That makes sense, right? What am I hoping for if I see it with my eyes? You know, I'm hoping that uh, my car will start. Well, once your car starts, your hope goes away. Okay? It's cold outside. I hope that we can get the, the heat going. Once the heat starts going, your hope goes away. There's no point for the hope, right? So for what man sees, why does he hope for it? That's the concept. But if we hope for what we see not, then do we with patience wait for it? So when you have hope and you're not seeing what you're hoping, you're waiting for that patiently. And sometimes, a lot of time, most of the time, waiting for what you're hoping in is, is hard and it's difficult to be patient. It's like all of this illness that's around us. When will it end? We have a hope that it will come to an end. And it's difficult to have patience in that process, but we have to. It's like what I told my parents when they, the very first day they went into the hospital. You know, you're in for a long, you're in for a long journey. This is going to be a storm. You're going to have to fight, and it's not going to, it's not going to be easy. So get in there and fight. I told that to my mom and my dad. I, I said the same thing just. Now in the text to Stephen, your recovery is around the corner, so keep up the fight. Your recovery's your, your recovery's around the corner. You have to have the hope for what will be, and then you have to you have to focus on where you're headed. If you if you focus on something else, if you focus on wanting it immediately, that immediacy, that immediate requirement in your mind, will cause you to lose faith. It will cause you to lose belief. You can't, you can't allow the, 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 the requirement of, of desiring something immediately 
to break your faith. So that's what hope is. Hope is saying, I know that it's somewhere in the distant future. I see it with my eyes in my heart and in my mind. And I know that in the distant future, something is going to change. The circumstances will turn. I have hope in that change, and I will take it day by day in belief and patiently attack that doubt that comes in every single day that my hope will not be realized. Likewise, the Spirit also helps. This is something we totally forget, guys. We completely forget about this part of Scripture. The Spirit also helps our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. That literally says the Spirit itself is praying for us. Independent of you and I. I think we don't recognize that, you know, we believe that it's got to be always us praying. It's, we've got to come up with a prayer, a, a good prayer, or the right prayer. Well, sometimes when we're just totally weak, we're just totally torn down, the Spirit is actually praying. You can't hear it. It's not being uttered. It's not coming from you. But it's the independent Ruach that's praying for you, making intercession for you on your behalf to God. And he that searches the hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Your, your belief leads to your hope, leads to your calling, leads to your justification, leads to your glory. That's what the scriptures tell us. But the single most difficult pursuit that we have as believers, and I'll argue even Gentile non-believers, okay, Jewish non-believers, is to realize that the world that we see in our physical eye, with our physical eyes, this tangible world that we're discussing every single day, is not the real world. The real world is a spiritual world. It's a world that resides in our hearts and in our minds. That's the real world. 
couple weeks ago, I think it was, that I talked about, might have been last week, um, in James, it talks about the, that God formed the dust of the earth and that the body was formed and shaped and then he breathed life and then that life that was breathed in was, was life. And that there's no body that is alive, no frame, no flesh, no bone that's alive. What brings it life is the spirit which is inside of you. That spirit is eternal and alive. That spirit is always living. That's, that's the theology, that's the understanding. When the spirit leaves the body, the body is dead, but the spirit is still alive. That which is alive stays alive. That which is dead stays dead, unless something alive gives it the opportunity to move. If that's the case, and that's the belief we have, and when we separate from our bodies, our flesh and our spirit, and our spirit goes off to be where, where it came from because it's alive and eternal, and our body goes back to the dust because it is dead, then what is truly our world is that which is alive, and that's the spirit. So we have to live in the spirit, not the flesh, and that's the whole point. When God says you're building your treasures, where do you build them? You're not building up dead treasures. You build treasures that are alive, and that's in the spirit. So here we have this real world. The real world is the spiritual world, and we, we forget it. We get so, we get so cognizant of the, of the physical, and we fail to focus on the spiritual. The battles are really here in the spirit. They're really not here in the flesh. That's a hard thing to come to. That's a hard Understanding That's a hard concept to, to, to realize that I'm not battling in the flesh because the flesh is so real. The spirit sometimes gets very confusing, but that is the real world. That is where the real battle occurs. How can we get ourselves to believe, have faith in, hope that the spirit is truly moving in the flesh? So that our calling in the spirit manifests itself in the flesh. How do we get our calling in the spirit to manifest itself in the flesh? That's a hard, that's a hard thing to come to. And, you know, we get so buried in all the stuff that's going on around us in the physical world that we, we fail to see God every single day in everything that's going on and every action and every movement and every activity that happens in our lives. And I believe that that's really what is going on. And God is patiently waiting. God himself is patiently hoping that we will come to the understanding of the Spirit so that we can live in our flesh more fully and see his power in our lives. The true battleground, it's not, it's not laden with rockets and, and, and machine guns and... and uh, you know, all the stuff that we see in, in warfare. But it's a staging ground, rather, for decisions that exist somewhere between our hearts and our minds. For the decisions that are created between here and here, that's the real battle. It's, it's actually, the battleground's pretty small. <laughs> it's not even a, a very small, large space. You know, when you go to battle, you go look at the, you, you, you take a lay of the landscape. Let's go look at the lay of the landscape. Let's get a, 
let's get a, a, a drone so that we can go up in the sky with a drone and we can look down on the battleground and see where, where, what our strategic positioning is. You know, are we going to be able to fight this battle? Literally, this is the battleground. They don't need a drone for this. It happens here and it happens here. This is where we win battles. We win battles inside, in our minds and in our hearts. That's the constant fight. We're constantly fighting deceit. We're constantly fighting um, fear. That's the fight. It's deceit, deception. And it happens within our hearts and in our minds. The scriptures say in Romans, for whom he did foreknow, he also predestined, and who he predestined, he called, and who he called, he justified, and he glorified. These words are encouraging for us that, that we're sitting in this room claiming to be one of the elect of God, which means that he foreknew you. Here we are sitting here claiming to be the elect. Claiming that God foreknew who you are, who you're going to be. Some of us fight it too. I mean, I remember there's stages in our lives when you're young kids. I'll talk to you for a moment, youth. You want to fight God. Because you want to do things that you know necessarily aren't, aren't right. So you want to fight with God, even though he foreknows you. And let me give you an example. Well, we'll get into that example here in a moment. But, but again, I'll give, I'll give you a real-life example. My father, when I was just a young guy, young child, maybe 8, 9, 10 years old, he had a dream. And in his dream, this is the rabbi, in his dream... He was in my bedroom, sitting on my bed. And he said to God, I commit my house to you. I commit my house to you. Well, interesting. Okay, God says, he, he's telling God he commits his house to you. Interestingly, in that dream, he's sitting on my bed. I'm his firstborn son. And he's committing me to God. God foreknew that I would be born. God foreknew that I would follow him. But at the same time, my, my father had to commit him, me to him. Well, when, once, once he commits me to God, it's up to God now to care for me. And then that battle starts with God. Well, you can't have that battle with God for too long. Lest your conscience become seared. You have to seek that which is right. So if you're foreknown and you want the right thing, you live your life according to what God requires. You're going to buck the system. We all do. We even still do it as adults. Sometimes as adults, we sit back and say to ourselves, well, I don't really care if that's wrong or not. I'm going to do it because that's what I want to do. Right? We get it in our heads that we want to be that way or do that thing. And we don't really care. And it's bucking this God. It's bucking God's system. But God wants us to Allow him complete control so that our calling can manifest itself. 
We've accepted Yeshua as the Mashiach. We've been conformed to the image of the Son. And we walk out the righteousness of the law because of the indwelling of the Ruach, which produces the inclination to do good in large quantities within our hearts. We have to, the, the, the following of the law produces that inclination to do the good things that God has for us, the callings which he puts inside of us. That's what the Ruach living inside of you does. We constantly wrestle with it. With the spirit which is constantly pushing us to do that which is good versus that which is evil. It stops us when we wrestle with it. It stops the spirit of God from moving in our lives. It stops the spirit of God from manifesting our own calling in, in, in this world. Whatever that may be, whatever that calling is, it's hard to do good when you are in the midst of evil. Sometimes you have to make a decision. You have to decide. I was talking to someone this week about it. We get to choose how we react to certain circumstances. We get to choose. And we have to react well because we represent something great. If we start reacting wicked and evil, what do we do? We not only destroy our testimony, but the testimony of who God is. We have to understand our testimony is not just our own. It's We represent something larger than ourselves. It's not just this face that you see that, that, I'm, that I'm harming. I'm not harming this person. I'm harming a broader reality, and that one is of God. Psalms 119.34 says, Give me understanding and I'll keep thy law. I will observe it with my whole heart. Have we decided to serve the law with our whole heart? Like that, that, that's a deep, even though it's just a scripture and we can read it very simply, give me understanding and I'll keep thy law. I'll observe it with my whole heart. Right? I mean, you read it like that, it, makes, it just makes it like you're reading a book. But if you read it in the context of a, of a Davidic psalm, where I'm sure he was crying out for understanding. Give me understanding. Help me. Help me to understand. Right? Imagine how he felt. Lord, I just need you to help me understand what I'm to do. Give it to me and I'll keep your law. I'll do it with my whole heart. This is his reaction. He's reacting to the circumstances of pain that he's in in this life. He's not reacting to just a simple, give me understanding and I'll keep your law. I can gain understanding by reading. I can get knowledge by simply just reading. Two plus two equals, that's, that's knowledge. I can get knowledge, but this isn't knowledge that they're asking for. This is understanding of who I am to be, where I'm to go. Give me the understanding of who my, what my calling is. And I will keep your law with my entire heart, Lord. It's an ultimatum almost to God. Give me what I need to live my life and understand it, and I'll give you what you want. And what you want is to keep your whole law. 
This is a heart-wrenching, deep crying out to God. Help me understand who I am. The Word of God is full of understanding. It's full of wisdom that directs us toward keeping the laws and observing His appointed times. It's full of it. We can read it and understand it with our minds, but do we get it with our soul? With our nephesh, with our hearts, do we really get what the purpose of it is and what God is trying to do? Those of you sitting here, you are one of God's elect. If you've accepted Yeshua as your Mashiach and you believe in him and he's called you out and he's touched your life and you seek a relationship with him and you're in constant prayer and reading of the word, you are one of the elect. The elect know who they are. That's the other thing I believe. You know if you're part of God. If you're wrestling with God, you're, you're his. Someone who wrestles with God is, is, is one of God's. That sounds like ours, huh? Yeah. He's, out, he's back there causing problems. That's the, that's the, that's the reality. If you, if you even have a thought in your mind, I shouldn't do this. Well, you're already, you're the elect. The, the, the thought in your mind of, I should be more like this, tells you you're one of God's elect. There are people in the world that don't even register in their minds right from wrong. Well, that's a telltale sign. They're probably not one of the elect. But we have a unique opportunity as the elect to experience personal communication with God, to learn the plans He has for us in this life, so long as we have ears of a child to listen to them. That's the hardest part. You realize that Avraham was 75 years old when he was called? You don't think like that, do you? 75 years old, he was told to leave her. He has to have ears of a child to hear that. And it's difficult to do it. I'm 41 years old, and I have a hard time having ears of a child. We turn them off. Blindly believe with, with faith in, in, in the invisible. And, I, and it makes sense to me that he's an older man when he came to the truth, that the, there's got to be one true God above all. You know, he's, it makes total sense to me that he's evolved into this understanding because he's you know, lived a life and he's seen it. And he's probably sitting back in his rocking chair on the porch, you can imagine, looking out at the city and these Chaldeans who are worshiping these wooden idols. And he says to, says to himself, it's been 75 years. And those idols have done nothing for us. It's the same worship every year for 75 years and nothing. 
There must be a God greater than this. A God over all gods. There must be. The wisdom of age comes into reality and he starts to recognize the truth. And then his calling can be manifest in the physical. Imagine he comes to that realization younger. Imagine he came to that realization when he was in his 40s. How much more his calling could have manifest in the physical. Now that's, that's our very, what I just said is, is, is our human problem. That human problem is regret. But let me argue that, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll destroy and debunk my own statement of imagine if he would have done it when he was younger by saying that God destined it for exactly when it happened. It wasn't going to happen when he was younger. God destined it for when it would happen. It's all in his timing, right? But we as human beings, we have this flaw inside of us, and that flaw is we look back and we regret, or we look back and wish we had something different or did something different, or if we could have just done this or could have just done that, this would have changed. Arguably, it wouldn't have. God knows our decisions. He knows what we're going to do, and he puts in place a plan, and he follows it, and I believe that with my whole heart. Ephesians 1, 8 through 9, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will. Having made known the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. Let's draw some conclusions today on the experiences of our patriarchs found in Genesis. Let's introduce the fact that God's foreknowledge of our lives is complete and it's deliberate. And when our, and we are in his care, we give up our will to the Father. He will establish our paths and cause us to walk according to his pleasure, which he has purposed in himself. And I pray in the end that we will have a richer understanding behind the meanings of our lives and the circumstances and events that punctuate this journey we're on. Ephesians 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua HaMashiach, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Mashiach, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of the children of, by Yeshua HaMashiach to himself. According to the good pleasure of his will. He formed us. He knew us before the foundation of the world. That what? We should be holy and without blame before him in love, even before the foundations. He knew us. He knew who we would be, and he wants us to feel be without blame. That we would be without blame before him in love, because his love, his mercy is so great and holy, he can look upon us and say, I love you, my children. Let's look at Genesis chapter 15. Abram said, Lord, what will you give me? 
Since I am childless and an heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, since you've given me no offspring, uh, one born in my house is my heir, as my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one, will, one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, look toward the heavens and count the stars. If you're able to count them, and he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned to, in him, to, to him as righteousness. This is key, guys. He, Abram says, who, okay, you called me out. I'm, who's good? I don't have an heir. Who am I going to be? And he says, look to this guy. Do you realize that we, it's, it's difficult to be, to be sand and stars. We're sand and stars. That's what we are. Abram looks to the sky, counts the stars, and, and, and numbers the sands on the seashore, and those are his descendants, and that's who we are through our faith. But he looks to him, and he says, well, who's my heir? And he says, I'm going to give you an heir. I'm going to give you an heir out of your own loins, and he just can't believe it. But this is, you'd think that he wouldn't be able to believe it, but this is what he says. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. God told him what would be, and he believed. You know, my mom wrote me a letter. I got it in the mail. And in that letter, it said, Mikey, you told me that I was coming home, and I believed you. That's what got me home. You know, mom was an organ failure. She was an organ failure. They told her, you know, she called all of us and said goodbye to us like it was a disaster. And I said, you're coming home. And she said, I believed you. And that's what kept me going. Well, that's, that's what we have to do with God. This is what Avraham does. Avram does. He believes God and it's counted to him as righteousness. And later in scripture, it even says that because he believed, he was considered righteous and, be, and that's why he was saved. Later in scripture, it says it. It says it in the New Testament. And he said to him, I am the Lord God who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it, he said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So God tells him what he's going to do, but yet he's still questioning. Well, how do I know it's mine? How do I know? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two, and he laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. There will be, they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. 
So God tells him, look up to the sky, the stars in the sand. They will be your children. And he believed. And then he makes a covenant between the parts with these animals, with God, to possess this land. And then God shows him and manifests a vision and a dream that your stars in your sand will be enslaved for 400 years. That's a disaster. Well, what was the, what's the point in that? It's not easy to get through to the purpose of God. It's all for His purpose. This is a big furnace that we live in. And this furnace that we live in is burning away hay, stubble, and chaff from humankind. And it takes time for humankind to be burning away that which is wicked, to understand that which is holy. And sometimes people have to be the tools and instruments of God. And it just so happened that the descendants of Avram are the tools and instruments of God to bring holiness and righteousness to the earth. In Genesis 6, 5, it says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In the beginning, God was forced to flood and destroy his creation because the evil inclination of man was so rampant. And due to God's gracious nature, a man named Noah was able to find grace in the eyes of the Creator. He found grace. And, 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 and Genesis states that the man was that man, all man was evil continually. And it suggests that the decision that man would make was continually, constantly wicked. Every decision that they made. It's like Sodom and Gomorrah where we've, we do things that are immoral. We do sins. All of us. But we don't make immorality the center of our lives. We don't make it normal. Sodom and Gomorrah made immorality normal. So they were continually wicked. We sin, we ask forgiveness, we move on. This wasn't going on at this period of time, but this is, the, this is the interesting part. God had to do something, so he finds this man, Noah, and he realizes what's going on. But man's choices, they're so wicked that they lack the ability to choose good. And they spiraled further and further into this wickedness. And in terms of Noah, there's no evidence that states that he did not sin. I'm assuming he did. I'm sure he did. It wasn't as if Noah was so righteous and holy that he could be walking in the garden and if God told Noah not to eat from the tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil, then Noah wouldn't have done it. The fact is, is Noah would have done it too. He was also a sinner. The difference was he was not, he, he didn't make sin a normal thing. 
he was a seeker of good and a suppressor of that which is evil. And, but even when he did evil, he suppressed it and he tried to seek God's heart. And so Noah's heart predestined him for salvation from the judgment of God. And it didn't only predestine him for salvation, it predestined his children. And his children were a mess. But his predestination helped his children, gave them an opportunity. His heart was conflicted and it was grieved by the wickedness of the world and that's why he was saved. Now in contrast, during a period after the flood, in a time that man seemingly proved to be increasingly wicked, God chose this attention, uh, chose to center his attention on a single man. J.P. Abram, the man was Abram, as we talked about. J.P.S. Torah commentary on Genesis says that the story of Abraham opens without an identifying formula or preliminary observation of the type that introduces the Noah narrative. The patriarch bursts upon the scene of history with astounding suddenness. The first 75 years of his life are passed over in total silence. God's call in an instant, without forewarning or preparation. You know, the Noah narrative, it, you, you see it building. Abram shows up on the scene at age 75. No discussion of his prior life. None. He just appears. His prior life doesn't matter for all intents and purposes. But it would be interesting to know who he was. And the passage here in Genesis presents Abraham's call. It's here that we are introduced to God's intention for Abraham through a covenantal relationship which promised him generations of offspring numbering as the stars in the sky. And it's important to note that in addition to God's promise of offspring, God does what? He reveals to Abraham that his descendants would suffer at the hand of a foreign nation 400 years. The, you're a 75-year-old guy. You just want to sit in your rocking chair on your porch. Have a few cigars. And here he is. Told. You're about to start a family. And uh, they're going to go to slavery. Imagine the dramatic change the drama that this guy is going to have. I'm assuming that he, he didn't have the extent of the drama that he incurred when he, when he left. I mean, his whole life shifted. But when you walk into the call of God and you have to move in God's call when he calls, and that's the important part of this suddenness that happens. When God calls you, it's sudden and you have to act. You have to do it. You have to follow his calling. Here he is, he's following his calling and he's acting. And God's moving. And it has nothing to do with Abraham. It has everything to do with what God's intending for the world. Abraham just is a tool. And I don't care, Abraham, that you're, you're going to experience drama, that you're going to be traumatized, 
that your wife's going to leave you. I don't care that she's going to leave you because you're, you're crazy and you take your son on a mountain and you try to kill him and she had enough. That you're doing this for me. So here he is being called. We have to point out these facts to reveal that God has infinite knowledge into the lives and experiences of humanity of that which he created. God gave Abraham the foresight to peer into the world to come, to garner an understanding of the experiences that his people would ultimately encounter. The point here is that God has historically prepared many of his elect through instruments such as dreams and visions and personal encounters that present the destinies that the elect would greet out of an immediate obedience to the call and command of the Lord, out of immediate obedience. God, God knows, this is funny, that, you know, God knows what is coming. We forget that. We pray, Lord, make this change, make this. God knows what will be. We should be praying, show me what you see. So I know how to pray. And encourage everyone else around me. He already knows it. He's already seen it. If he can look at Avram and tell him your descendants, which is later, later, okay, are going to go into slavery for 400 years. He already knows. That's why the Spirit can pray for you. Because it also knows. We may not, but God knows. And that's where our belief and our hope and our faith has to reside that this will which is before us, which is not our own, that it will guide us and it will be purposeful. That what is happening in our circumstances around us will have a purpose. Avram sure did. In addition to revealing Abraham's destiny and the destiny of his offspring, it's the belief that many religious individuals and scholars that God had potentially revealed the future Messiah for humankind to Abraham. This idea comes out of the concept and reality surrounding the future Messiah. It's not hard to grasp given that God's relationship with Abraham was, was one of disclosure. God would disclose to Abraham many things. So the idea that he gave him the, the concept of the future Messiah makes a lot of sense. Where would he have done this at? Well, he tells him to go to the area, the mountains of Moriah, and take his son there in, in Genesis chapter 22, where there, is, where there is the Akidah, where he takes him and he binds him, Yitzchak, and he puts him on an altar, and he's beginning to sacrifice him. And it says in 22, 1 through 5, that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, 
Hineni, here am I. He said, take your son now, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering of one of the mountains which I tell you to go. So Abraham rose early in the morning. This calling that he had, this calling was traumatic. This was a traumatic calling that he had. God tells him, come to the mountain and bring your son and, and sacrifice him to me, your only son, the one I promised you. I told you you would have. And this is where it's interesting. Abraham says here in the, in the final verse of verse 5, he says to the, to the servants that are there, I and the lad will return. Remember he says that. I and the lad will return. And I think that this is the part that's interesting because Abraham tells them that he's coming back. And the reason I believe he tells them is that he understands the lesson here. He believes in God. God's shown him some mighty things. He's been there with him in dreams. And he tells him earlier, I'm going to make you an heir. And it's, not, and it's an heir of your own loins. And your descendants will number as the stars in the sea, uh, sky, and, and, and so on and so forth. And so I think Abraham realizes, I believe. Remember, the scripture said, and he believed. And this was why he was righteous. He believed that still. He still had faith in the original. So he knew God would perform a miracle. I don't think he was ever worried about Itzchak. I think that if he would have sacrificed him, he probably believed God would raise him. He must. He's my son and my heir. He told me I'd have one. He must. He'll do something. We'll be back. There he is. He binds his son. He puts him on an altar. And what happens? There's a ram in a thicket. And what is this doing? Verse 12, do not stretch your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. You realize it was God that Avram never had sons or daughters before. That was the intention. Why? Because God was going to call him at some point, And God was going to need to teach him a lesson. And God was going to give him an only son with his wife. And that lesson has a lot to do with Yeshua. And what God was going to have to do. Avram is the father of our faith. God is the father of all mankind. The father of our faith, that only son that he was going to sacrifice. God has to sacrifice for all mankind. He's teaching him a lesson here, and it's a very deep lesson, and it's a part of his calling that he would not have received if he didn't believe and have hope and walk in righteousness. He wouldn't have believed the call. He wouldn't have received the calling. It would never have manifested in the physical for him without belief. God revealed his intentions to bring salvation to the world through his only begotten son to Avraham. 
This idea brings us to a revelation of a larger concept of salvation through a mediator or through a Messiah that would be required for the atonement of the children of Abraham in the world. It's it's important to, to, to note that at this point, God did not reveal a conquering Messiah. He revealed a sacrifice that would mediate and substitute for man's failure to embrace righteousness. And in later discussions within Israel's theological framework, this form of the Messiah has been understood to be the Messiah son of Joseph, Mashiach ben Yosef. We recognize in Genesis the same relationship that God began with Abraham. It was fostered and further developed with his sons, Isaac and Jacob. It was God's practice to reveal his purpose to his sons of the covenant as they were called in commission. God revealed himself to those in covenant with him, to those that were called by him, predestined, the elect. God will reveal himself to us. If we are called by him, we have to seek him. Isaac's son Jacob, not Esau, was elected to carry on the blessing and the relationship that God made with humanity through Israel. This election was revealed to Isaac's wife Rebekah as an angel informed her that the elder child would serve the younger. Yet another point in in time where God reveals the destiny of his elect prior to its fruition, Jacob's sons are therefore the heirs of the covenant and executors of the blessing that comes from God to the world. Jacob's son Joseph was much like his father and grandfather's in that scriptures implicitly reveal that Joseph had a personal relationship with God evidenced by dreams. And so we conclude that God elected Joseph to a position that would ultimately prove to bring salvation to the world and his father's destiny and and his father's family. You, you, You guys have to understand that if, unless you submit yourself to belief in God, understanding and having hope that he is sovereign and in control, develop a relationship through prayer, the calling which is on you cannot manifest in the physical. Every man that moved in the scripture had visions, dreams, encounters with God because they themselves submitted their, their spirits and their flesh to him. Therefore, their, their, their bodies were, were able to act out that blessing which God had for them. Everyone who was of the elect, who follows righteousness, has been called to something. I read weekly many of the prayers that go out. I can promise you that some people have been called to pray. Powerful prayers. Some people have been called to pray. Genesis 37, 3 through 12, you can read it yourself. It's about how the brothers saw that that Joseph was loved more and they hated him for it. And so they sold him to some Ishmaelite traders. But, But Joseph had these dreams and he told them the dreams. That the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing to him and before him. And then at the end of at the end of the verse eleven, it says, His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the sayings in mind. 
they guarded the sayings and, 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 and they point out the, the fact that we can look at Jacob's response. He says, he's, I'm not concerned about the bro- brothers in that they responded in a typical human sibling manner. The brothers were very ticked off and mad that this little, you know, arrogant little boy comes over and says that, oh, you guys are going to all bow to me. That was a very natural response of a sibling. The father, the father looked at this very differently. Jacob understood that God revealed himself through dreams because God, because Jacob himself had visions and dreams. He received that both from his mother and his father. His mother, Rebecca, also had visions of the angel who came to her. Thus it said that Jacob kept the sayings in mind, or in Hebrew, shamar, guarded, literally guarded the sayings, so that Jacob say, so that the sayings, because of the repetition nature of the dreams, which seemingly suggested an authenticity of the message or its thrust, the message was in fact clear to both the brothers and Joseph's father, and that the entire family would somehow come under future subjection to Joseph because of some divine authority or rule, and that that, that awaited Joseph's future. The fact that Jacob mused on the sayings reveals the intrinsic understanding that Jacob had a about the venue of communication between God and man. He knew that God was communicating, and so he mused on them. He, understood, he took them in, and he guarded them. But he wondered what this could mean. And I'll, and I'll be honest with you, even if you think about the way the brothers have scorned and hated him uh, and, and, and his haughty approach to the dreams that God revealed to, to him, it's, it's, it's funny that God intended them to even get mad at him. That was all part of the divine, the divine future. That was all predestined of the elect. God intended they get angry. God intended that they go, they throw him into slavery. God intended that he, that he was, he spent 17 years of, of, of pain away from his family. God intended all of it. But we read the story and we think to ourselves, that was terrible that they did that. Man, they should never have done that. If they didn't do that, we wouldn't be here doing what we're doing. And even Joseph himself, he says to his brothers, he understands. Don't worry. I get it. I know what was meant to be. God did this so that we would all be saved. All of it was for the purpose of salvation, and it took years and years and years for that activity, that, that experience to, get, to, to, to uh, be overcome. Chapter 45 of Genesis 1 through 13 shows the, the revealing and what, and what Joseph said to his brothers. We gain this understanding of the events preceded Joseph's revelation of his identity and that we look through the chapters in Genesis that precede this coming out. We're, we have to be cognizant of the theme that God has elected certain ones to perform his divine will on earth for humanity. He has to have done that. And I'm inclined to believe that the blessing of the patriarchs was and still is vital to the understanding of God's relationship with humankind on earth today specifically in regard to the Messiah and his role in saving and guarding us from death. The fact is that God's relationship with Joseph was much like the relationship that his father Abraham had when he was called from Haran. Like Abraham, Joseph was called out of his people to wander in a world, in a place that God would reveal to him. Along the journey, God set up memorial stones, Potiphar's house, the butler, the baker. 
It enabled Joseph to embrace and be reminded of the promise painted in his dreams as a young boy. Joseph was chosen because like Abraham, like Isaac and Jacob, he could see the larger purpose of this Lord in troubling circumstances when dealing with humanity and his heart like Noah was upright. Joseph's heart was gracious and understanding and thus God could mold him into the servant that he required for the salvation of the world. The story of Joseph concludes the book of Genesis and interestingly converges immediately with the vision that God gave to Abraham about the descendants and their slavery. This story immediately converges with, with, with Egypt in Exodus. So what are we to learn from all this? That we see a pattern in the scriptures and the timelines from Noah to Joseph, Joseph to Moses, Moses to David, David to Yeshua, and Yeshua to his apostles and his apostles to us, which proves that God had, God's hand has been indivisible and intimately involved with the destinies of man, specifically his elect. All of it was meant to be, and all that will be in the future, God's hand is in. If you recall in the Brit Kadashah, Yeshua tells the disciples in John 15, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go forth and bring forth fruit, that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Likewise, Yeshua has chosen you today as one of the elect to go out to bring forth fruit through the telling of his glory. Just as Joseph sent his brothers to his father to proclaim his glory and accomplishment, we are likewise commissioned to declare the glory and salvation of our Lord through Yeshua our Mashiach. You have been elected. You have been chosen by God. Now is the time to respond with immediate obedience to his calling. You have to believe. You have to have faith and hope. Hope has to turn into action so that it can manifest God's calling in our lives. Amen? It is our duty to praise the master of all, to ascribe greatness to the author of creation, for he made us unlike the nations of the lands and has not placed us like the families of the earth. He's not made our portion like theirs and our lot like all their multitudes. And we bend the knee and bow and acknowledge our thanks before the king over kings. The holy one blessed is he. He stretches out heaven and establishes earth's foundation. The seat of his glory is in the heavens above, and the presence of his power is in the most exalted heights. He is our God, there's none other. True is our king, there's nothing beside him, as it is written in his Torah. You shall know this day and take to your heart that the Lord, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. There is none other.